Hey, listen, uh, we are continuing in the book of Colossians, and we titled this sermon series The Supremacy of Christ because we really believe that the book of Colossians is really a teaching is to make Jesus supreme. Uh, last week, we talked about the first part of chapter one and really kind of the central part where it talks about making Christ preeminent. And that whole idea of making Christ preeminent, uh, giving him our first and our best because he gave first to us, he gave his best to us, and so he deserves the first and the best back. Uh, uh, if you didn't get a chance to be here last week, I want to encourage you. I don't uh, always encourage people to go back and listen to every sermon, but last week's is really important to understanding the book of Colossians, and I think what God wants to teach us through it. And so if you weren't able to be here, go to our website, fogkc.com, and take a listen uh, to last week's sermon. And I, I think it'll bless you. I think it'll help you. And I think it will really challenge you uh, to make Christ really preeminent uh, in your life. I was challenged by it, and, and several others told me that they were challenged by it. And so uh, we want to make Christ preeminent. And today we want to talk about maintaining our hope. If we uh, really truly make Christ preeminent, and by the way, uh, while I want to encourage you to make Christ preeminent in your life, he already is preeminent in the universe, uh, so you might as well just give him what he already deserves and what he already is. If you don't make him preeminent in your life, uh, that doesn't mean he's still not preeminent. Uh, but uh, today we're going to talk about maintaining our hope, and we're going to take a look at three verses uh, in the middle of chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, and the reason I'm taking a very small portion of scripture today is because uh, in this passage, uh, there's a, a passage that can be a little bit confusing, and if we don't really spend some time on it and talk about uh, the detail of it, I'm afraid it might send a very wrong theological message, and so we want to make sure that we um, uh, attack it correctly and uh, unpack it well. And so we're going to take a look, and first we're going to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul has just got through writing to the, uh, the Colossian church, and he says, uh, you know, make Christ preeminent in everything because Christ is preeminent. He's done all these wonderful things for for you, and then he goes on to pick up in verse 21. This is what he says. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The first thing I want you to see in, in this uh, passage is to remember the depths of our lostness. Paul wants us to remember. He just spent time telling us about putting, uh, making Christ preeminent in our lives, first and best in everything. And then he goes back, and by the way, don't forget, you once... You once were lost. In fact, he used three specific phrases. He says, you were alienated, you were, ho you were hostile in mind, and you were doing evil deeds. Now, I know for some of you, um, um, remembering what life was like before you gave your life to Christ could have been a few weeks ago, a few months ago, a few years ago. Uh, I was 12 years old uh, when I gave my life to Christ, and so I, I don't really remember much uh, about my life before that, but it doesn't take much uh, imagination to understand uh, when I know myself pretty well, I know my tendencies, I know my temptations, I know the things in my life now, if I had no Christ in my life, if Christ was not a part of my life, if his Holy Spirit wasn't in me, uh, my life would be in ruins. Uh, my life would be chaotic, I would be living by my feelings rather than by my decisions, and my life would be a total and complete disaster. 
Uh, and so he wants to remind people, don't forget kind of where you came from. Kind of where you came. He says you were alienated. This word means you were cut off from God. There was this vast chasm between you and God. It, it emphasizes great distance and great separation. He said you were, you were an alien. You were alienated from God. He says you were hostile in your mind. And really what this means is you were wrong in your thinking. Now, at this point, uh, if you're here and you haven't yet given your life to Christ, you, you might be saying, well, that's kind of rude. He says, I'm hostile in my thinking. I'm not hostile towards God. Well, uh, this word hostile doesn't mean necessarily uh, 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 an enemy in the sense that you're an active enemy, but, but it's wrong in your thinking, wrong in your approach to life. The reality is, folks, without Christ in our lives, we are all self-centered. We are all selfish. In fact, uh, even after we give our lives to Christ, we have to fight against that. The reality is, as human beings, we want what we want when we want it, and, and, and it's hard to not give in to that. So he says, you were hostile in your mind, in your thinking. And then he says, doing evil deeds. He said, everything we did had some element of evil towards it. Now we look at that and we go, how's that possible? I mean, I mean, don't people do good things? Whether they are, are, are close to Christ or they're far from Christ, don't they still do good things? What about somebody who gives a lot of money uh, to like a children's orphanage? Well, many times, folks, uh, things that look very good on the surface, when you really kind of step back and you look at them, uh, they might not be quite as good as they appear on the outside. For instance, if a person gives a lot of money to a children's orphanage and they spend a lot of their time going, hey, I, I, I bought that wing for the orphanage. In fact, they, they have a plaque there with my name on it. And I have a copy of the plaque in my house. I show it to everybody who comes in. All of a sudden, that really good thing has, has become very tainted because that's really not about selflessly helping others. It's about selfishness and making myself look good. You see, there are many motives in our hearts, and, and if we're really honest with ourselves, folks, there are many selfish motives and desires in our hearts that we disguise as good things sometimes. We need to be careful not to do that. We need to be careful not to do that. But what he's saying here is, guys, don't forget where you came from. Remember, if you're going to make Christ preeminent, don't forget once you were alienated, you were far from God, you were hostile in your thinking towards him, and you were doing evil deeds. In fact, in some Christianity right now, there's, there's this uh, new thinking going on that, you know, really all of us are, are deeply good at our core. We've just decided to do badly. Nothing can be further from the truth. Uh, folks, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, let me just tell you, I know myself really, really well. I, I feel like I have a great self-awareness, and I am evil to my core. I am selfish and self-centered to the core of my being. The only thing, the only way that I can overcome that is Christ in me. And so let's be careful that we don't fall into a trap of wanting to feel better about ourselves. And so we, we, we latch on to a new thinking that somehow we're all really good people. We aren't really good people. We aren't really good people. Uh, one of the Ten Commandments is do not lie. Have you ever lied? You're not a good person. The Bible says obey your parents. Anybody here ever disobey their parents? You're not a good person. Okay? Let's, just, let's just realize, folks, that we are not 
good people in and of ourselves. We need Christ in us to become good. Uh, look what the second thing that Paul says. He says, uh, oh, sorry, I wanted to go back to verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. I just want to repeat that verse because I want you to remember I'm not making this up, okay? Number two, Christ's death became our reconciliation. In the first part of verse 22, it says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He's saying, once you were far away, you were separated from God, you were evil in your thinking, you did evil deeds, but now Christ's death has reconciled you. By his physical death on the cross, he made a nation, that means the restoration of a relationship. If a relationship has gotten strained and it's far away, reconciliation is the act of that relationship coming together. No longer having this big gap of separation. No longer having this big chasm between the two. No longer being far away but being close. It's the act of being reconciled. And he's saying, listen guys, in Jesus' body, when he died on the cross, he did that willingly to reconcile you, to bring you close to God, to give you the opportunity to put your faith and trust in him so that you could be forgiven of your sinfulness. Jesus has bridged the alienation that our sinfulness created. And folks, by faith, if we will just accept that and embrace that and, 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 and accept that as our own, Jesus brings us close to God. He, the separation is no longer there. We become his children. We give our lives to him. Now, the last point that we see in this passage, the one we're going to spend the rest of our time today on, is this one. And that's to maintain your hope and assurance by presenting yourselves wholly to Christ. Look at the last part of verse 22 and verse 23. Now, Paul has just said, hey, don't forget where you came from. You were alienated from God. You were, you were uh, hostile in your thinking. You were uh, an evil deed doer. And, uh, uh, you know, Jesus gave his life to bring you close to God. Then he says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, here's why we're going to spend so much time on this verse, because on the surface, it looks like this is saying, you keep your salvation as long as you continue in the faith uh, through the rest of your life and live a holy, uh, godly life. We've got to be, be careful about that. We're going to take that apart here in just a minute. But first, I want to talk to you about what biblical hope is. A biblical hope, uh, the word hope, we use in our English language uh, in a different way than the Bible uses the word hope. All right? And, and so I'm going to share that with you. But hope, uh, according to the Bible, is the desire plus an absolute expectation. It's the two of those things together. Now, we use the word hope for just a desire all the time. Uh, a statement like this. I hope to catch a big fish. I'm going to go fishing, and I hope to catch a big fish. I don't know if I will or not. I don't even know if I'm going to catch any fish. If I do, I don't know if it'll be big or not. But I hope to catch a big fish. We use that word hope like that all the time. That is not the biblical view of the word hope. Uh, in, in the Bible's view of the word hope, it's this. I hope to catch a big fish, and I completely expect to do so. 
In fact, I, I completely expect to do so so greatly, so greatly, that if it doesn't happen, I'll be shocked. It's not just a careless wishing for something. It's the idea of wishing and expecting. It's, it's being totally stunned and shocked and surprised if it doesn't come to pass. In fact, it includes a level of assurance that the object of desire is guaranteed. That's really biblical hope. It's not just I hope something will happen, but I, will, I hope that it happens and I expect it to happen because there's a guarantee it will happen. Now, there aren't too many guarantees in life, folks, but there are a couple. There are a couple. So when we look at this verse and it says, or it seems to say, uh, it's kind of troubling to our theological understanding because it kind of looks like it's saying only if we're uh, faithful to the end, if we don't somehow uh, trip up in our Christian life, we can keep our salvation. Uh, that's not true, okay? Uh, so we need to take this kind of apart a little bit and look at uh, some different views that this phrase could mean, some different um, um, uh, options that it could mean. And so I want to go through these kind of quickly, uh, but I want to share them with you so that we can understand really what this, this passage is saying uh, when it's not saying what we think it's saying, all right? So the first one is, there's five views of verse 23. The first one is that you lose your eternal salvation. It's the idea that I can be so bad that I lose my standing with Christ. Now, think about that for a minute. Just read those words. I can lose my eternal salvation. Now, that's an oxymoron right there. It's a, it's a logic problem right there. I can lose something that's eternal? How do I lose something that's eternal? How do I lose something that I already have? You all know what oxymorons are, right? Words that go together that say the opposite, like jumbo shrimp, you know? I'm clearly confused. You're awfully good. You're awful or good, I can't tell, okay? So when you say, hey, uh, I'm losing my eternal, that's an oxymoron, it's eternal, okay? And, and, and you can't lose it if you've already received it. By the way, if you want to read Romans chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 2, John chapter 3, all of them make it absolutely clear that eternal life begins at the point where you give your life to Christ and it is irrevocable even to you. John chapter 3, folks, there's, there's just no doubt about this understanding. In John chapter 3, a man comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus said, Well, it's really very simple, my friend. All you have to do is be born again. He, by the way, Jesus didn't say, hey, join my band of merry men or join the PTA or the YMCA. Do, you know, join something. Because you join something, you can quit it, right? He said you have to be born again. The guy goes, what are you talking about? Born again? How am I going to crawl up inside my mother's womb and be born again? That's impossible. Jesus goes, you don't understand. You're already born physically. Everybody's been born once. You have to be born a second time spiritually. The reason that he said that, folks, is when you're born into the family of God, you can't be unborn. Listen, I can do things to disappoint my parents, frustrate them, anger them, all those things, but there is no behavior that I could ever participate in that would take their name off my birth certificate. Right? You go to a mass murderer, you look up their birth certificate, their parents' name is still on it. 
You can't do that. Folks, when we are born into the family of God, uh, God the Father is our new father. In fact, Jesus told his disciples a couple of times, I don't know if you remember this, but he told them a couple of times, hey, get behind me. Or he said, Satan is your father. Folks, the reality is we're born into God's family and we can disappoint him, we can frustrate him, he probably gets angry with us when we act like idiots, all those kinds of things. But nothing we can ever do will take his name off our spiritual birth certificate. We can't even choose to get it erased when we really have given our lives to him. Because folks, the Holy Spirit comes into us. He doesn't then get kicked out. He's in us, living in us. This particular understanding of this verse about losing our eternal salvation, it can't mean this because it will contradict many other passages in the scripture. By the way, the Bible is completely and and totally uh, uh, compliant with itself. Okay? It, 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 It does not contradict itself anywhere. If we read passages that seem to contradict, the problem isn't the scripture. The problem is our understanding of it. The problem is our interpretation of it. So it can't possibly mean this. Look at the second choice. The second possibility is that this is a hypothetical loss of salvation. And Paul uses the words, if indeed, when he says that, he's giving an if statement, uh, it can at least open the door for a hypothetical loss of salvation. Perhaps uh, Paul is saying, if you continue, uh, what he's really saying, when he says that, what he's really saying is, if you continue, and I know you will, Continue outliving your salvation. Here's the thing. But listen, the wording doesn't really support this, nor does the logic. Paul has no idea if these people are going to respond to the gospel or not. He has no idea if they're going to continue to stay in the gospel and follow through with the gospel or not. And so it would be really ridiculous, logically, for him to say, hey, um, uh, you know, if you continue, and I know you will, because it wouldn't make sense for him to say that. He would say it differently. Like, since I know that you will stay in the gospel... So this is, while it's a choice, it's not a good choice. The third one is the warning of false salvation. One view that some theologians have here is that Paul is speaking uh, to those that are really saved and those who are pretending to be saved. Now, it's clear from the immediate text right before this and the context of Colossians that Paul is speaking to those who are truly saved by Christ in, in this church. He's not talking to a a random group of people in the public. He's speaking to the people who have been born again in this church. Those who have some kind of false salvation. They're pretending to be saved. They're being religious, but they aren't truly saved. This is also not a good choice for understanding. The fourth one is that it works, that works somehow complete our salvation. This, of course, it goes against the true gospel that we've been talking about. The belief that somehow our salvation begins with God's love and it's somehow completed by our personal righteousness, that's anti-gospel, folks. That's not gospel. That's anti-Christ, not Christ. The gospel is that Jesus completed our access to the Father on the cross. We do nothing to get it except what he's given while our personal righteousness may point to our salvation and confirm its genuineness, it's only a result of, not a part of, our salvation. In other other words, uh, when you see Christian people doing good things, it's not in order to gain something from God. It's because we've already received from God uh, that we're giving back. 
that we feel obligated. Um, I just don't see any way, if God never blesses me again on this planet, and I live another 20 years, I, I will never be able to repay him for what he's already done for me. So I don't come to get something from God. I don't do something to earn something from him. He's already given us everything, folks, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the idea that Paul is saying uh, somehow your works complete your salvation is also a very poor, poor choice of understanding. The fifth one, and I think the right one, is this. that our, He's talking about our evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. This last possibility is that, that he's not referring to our position with Christ because of our salvation, but he's talking about our presenting ourselves to Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. The statement's not referring to the reconciliation in verse 22, but it's talking about the presentation in verse 22. For if we want to present ourselves to Christ. So look at the passage again. He says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, the reality is, folks, all of us will stand before God and give an answer to how we have lived. And we should all live in a way that Christ can say to us, well done, you have been a good and faithful servant. I don't want Jesus to look at me and go, man, I'm glad I died for you because, you know, you haven't done a thing right in your whole life. Now, I still need him to die for me and pay for my sins. I can't be good enough to wipe those out. But I do want him to say, hey, Michael, since I saved you, you've been a really good and faithful servant. It's not about earning something from him, but living out the price that he paid for our salvation. Maybe you're saying live out, you know, what do you mean by that? I'm a good person, maybe. But how, how well are we executing what we know? You know, occasionally somebody will come to me and they'll say, hey, Pastor Michael, we're just gonna, we're gonna leave Fellowship of Grace because uh, we just don't feel like we're getting anything out of your sermons anymore. We're not getting any new information. We're not getting any new understanding. And the question I always ask them is, how well are you executing everything you already know? See, the problem, folks, is that we don't need more understanding. We need more execution on our parts. The reality is we're all hypocrites, and I know some of you, as soon as you hear that word, the kind of the, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Listen, we have a level of knowledge and we have a level of execution. And the fact is there's a gap there, right? Listen, I know I should stop being selfish. I know that I should minister to my wife and my kids every chance that I get. Sometimes I'm just too tired. Sometimes I'm just too lazy. There's a gap. There's a gap of integrity there. My knowledge far surpasses my execution. Now, some people, they say, oh, I hate feeling that way so bad, so I'm going to bring down the knowledge level. I'm going to bring down what's expected of me so that I feel better about myself. Let's not do that, folks. Okay? Let's not do that. 
Let's just admit the fact that Jesus is here and we're here and there's always a gap. And we're trying, to, we're trying to be more like him. We're trying to live more like him. We're trying to yield to God's spirit in us more and more and more. But the reality is there's always going to be a gap. By the way, everybody has a hypocrisy gap to some degree or one degree or another. You know, also, one of the things get kind of bored. They kind of get bored with the gospel and they desire something more. Now, the American church is really good about this or really bad about this, however way you want to look at it, okay? The charismatic movement of the 60s that's still going strong today in American churches was started with this kind of belief and attitude. It's not enough to just experience the gospel. It's not enough to just give my life to the gospel and what Jesus has done for me and, and live in righteousness and, and practice the disciplines of Christianity and, and see God working through my life. They wanted something more. In the 80s, it was the prayer of Jabez. Make you healthy, wealthy, and wise if you just pray this prayer every day. And, and, and many Christians really, you know, they, they really bought into that. If I just do this, this was the way to control God and make him do what I want him to do for me. Today, it's the Hebrew movement. Uh, to live out Judaism in a mixture of Christianity that, that's, that's kind of Christianity on steroids. You know, it's better than Christianity. Uh, getting into numerology and understanding every single uh, number in the Bible and every secret code that Christians come up with. Folks, they're all a distraction from the finished work of the gospel. Listen, if you're, I want you to really hear this statement. If you're looking for something more than the gospel to fulfill your spiritual life, you don't understand the gospel. Flat out. You don't understand the gospel. The gospel is not only what saves us, but it gives us power, God's power, to overcome our sinfulness. What we need to do is live in the gospel more. Paul's saying, listen, if you want to present yourselves to God and not be uh, uh, embarrassed, humiliated, keep living in the gospel. Keep living in the truth that you know. And it, it minimizes that hypocrisy gap. You say, well, Michael, I, I kind of do that anyway. Really? Do we always love our spouses selflessly, doing the things we know we should do for them or do we just not do them because we don't want to? Do we always respond to our children in love and kindness, even when they're driving us crazy? Have you stopped gossiping and cutting others down at work when everybody else is doing it? Have you quit doing and thinking about the things that we know we shouldn't be thinking about and doing? The reality is, folks, we don't quit that completely. But are you even attempting to? Do, do, you, do you see Jesus as some kind of a get-to-heaven credit card where you can give your life to him and then just live your life the way you want to live it? We don't see that in the New Testament anywhere. Anywhere, folks. What Paul's saying is this. He says... He's saying when we live out the gospel in our lives, it provides us with hope and assurance, that guarantee, because we see God's Spirit working in and through us. 
You know, if you, if you struggle with feeling like, you know, I, I gave my life to Christ, I, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to follow him at times, and man, there's just days I just don't feel like he's with me. I feel like there's days he's not even listening. I feel like there's days he's not even here or that he doesn't even love me anymore. I feel like I've dropped the ball so many times he's just given up on me. Folks, that's not because God's not there or he's not listening or he's given up on you. That's because you've pulled the power plug. You, you aren't in a relationship with him. You aren't living in the gospel. You've drawn back from him and decided to live your own way. And folks, that will kill your hope. That will kill your assurance. Here's the answer for how you can gain great hope in the future and great assurance of your salvation. The fact is, folks, I know 100% without a doubt that I'm going to heaven when I die. You can stand up at my funeral if you outlive me and you can say that I said that. And I know, but it's not because of me. It's because of what Jesus has done in me and it's because I've seen the way that he's worked in my life after the fact. There's been evidence I share with you before what my life would be like without Christ. He's, he's, he's totally changed everything about my life. The way I think, the way I live, the way I interact with people, my relationships. He's changed it all. Not to my credit, to his credit. But that's evidence and proof that he's in my life. Folks, we need to, if, we li- if we will just live out our Christianity, if we will just live out this commitment that we've made, if we will just yield to the Holy Spirit in us and let God's power live in and through us, we will see evidence of God in our lives. We will see evidence of him changing our direction. We will see evidence of him changing our relationships. We will see evidence of him using us to do mighty and great things. A day when a church in Parkville with about 250 people attending, all decide together that we're going to live out the gospel. Not just be a family, not just come to church and worship together, but really live out the gospel and just see how God shows up. Folks, I want to be a part of that. I want you to be a part of that. God can and wants to do great and wonderful things through us, but we have to do what Paul's talking about here. We have to have our hope grow and and just be solid in our lives so that we live out our Christianity. Paul's giving us a little bit of a hint here, really why he's writing to this church. We haven't talked about it much yet because he hasn't talked about it much himself. In chapter two, we're gonna talk about a lot. If you remember, Paul at the very beginning of this, of this letter said, hey, your hope, your faith, and your love are all doing really great, which are really the three ways that he grades a church. But in chapter two, he's going to start saying, listen, this thing about hope, some of you are listening to people that are bringing about a new philosophy, that are bringing about a new doctrine, that are bringing about a new way of thinking and a new way of believing And you're going to lose your hope if you're not careful. You better keep living out the gospel. Not some newfangled, exciting thing that's, you know, new, folks. The gospel is old. Older than me. But you know what? 
It's still changing people's lives today. It's still changing people's eternity today. It's still changing churches today. And it's changing communities today. And, and he can change us and our community through us if we will just decide to live out the gospel together no matter what it takes and make Jesus preeminent in our lives and in our church. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. So thankful for this passage. We are thankful for the assurance of our salvation that comes through knowing you and through living out the gospel, through really making you preeminent in our lives. God, help us. Help us to not give you the last and the least of our time and our energy and our effort and our money and our thoughts and our commitment. But help us give you first and best because you loved us first and you gave us your best in your son. Father, as we attempt to live out the gospel, not to just let it save us, but to really live it out, I pray that you will help us, that your spirit will well up in us and drive us, help us to yield to you and do the right things that will grow our hope, that will give us that assurance, not because we're good, but because you are working in and through us. Father, if there's anybody here today who hasn't yet given their life to you, who is still far away from you and alienated from you, I pray that today they will have heard the way to tap in to the power, the power to not only have an eternity with you, but to have you in their life right now and that they will give their life to you today. Father, we thank you for the way you work in us. We pray, 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 God for your spirit to well up in us as individuals and as a church and that we will live out the gospel and that you will change this community because of the way that you are using us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.